gospel lesson is found in Matthew chapter 16. We are reading verses 13 through 29. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come today, we ask that you would reveal to us the secrets of your kingdom, that you would lead us in your way, that you would guide us in your paths, lead us in your truth and teach us, God. We are your disciples. We are your servants. You are our master. And so we ask that you speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. We've seen that as Jesus, in his ministry, as it matures, there are two realities at work. First, we've seen the inbreaking powers of the kingdom. Jesus gives sight to the blind. He raises the dead. He forgives sins and reconciles sinners to God. But we've seen the second dynamic, that there are also increasing levels of controversy and conflict. That is to say that there is polarization that takes place around Jesus. People are driven to the right or to the left of him. However, this polarization is not about the typical fractures that were part of Jesus' own society. There were plenty of poles that attracted people in first century Palestine. 
There was the division over how to handle the Roman occupation and what was the proper response. There were debates about who were the members of the true Israel and who could claim that title. There was also debates about the proper interpretation of the law and of the prophets, the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were deeply divided over these things. But that was not the polarization that was happening around Jesus. No, the polarization around him involved his claims and the response to those claims. Jesus himself is the polarizing factor. And he remains that same polarizing factor today. Because the question still comes to us today. What do we believe about him? Who do we say that he is? How do we respond to him? Is there a response of faith in which we entrust ourselves to him, recognizing that in him and in him alone there is forgiveness and life? Or is there a response of indifference and unbelief that dismisses Jesus and explains him away? In Matthew 16, as we journey deeper into the gospel, we see that Jesus recognizes the opposition that is arrayed against him. He speaks of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, speaking of their teaching, and he knows what they plot and what they plan against him. He warns his disciples. And then he begins to move intentionally towards establishing the movement that was growing around him. And for the very first time in the Gospel of Matthew, he mentions the church, the community that he is building around those who believe in him. And he sets four principles for us here that constitute the church that he comes to build and continues to build. And those four things are critical for us today, just as they were for those original disciples, and so we need to consider each of them. And we'll see first the basis of our membership in that church, and second, we'll hear about the promise of triumph for this community. Third, we'll, we'll also consider the conflict that is within us, even if those who have been brought in, that we still bring conflict. And finally, we'll also see the ethos that is to characterize this community that Jesus builds. And so let's look at each of these. First, in verses 16 through 18, we see the basis of our membership. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give a menu of options. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. People knew there was something special about Jesus but they didn't know specifically how to identify him. And so then Jesus asked the all-important question, the same question that comes to us today, but who do you say that I am? Peter, perhaps the bold, most bold of the disciples, stepped forward. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus applauds the answer. It's correct. He announced that Peter is blessed. He had answered correctly. And there's two things to note about that correct answer. First, in verse 17, Jesus explains that this answer has been revealed to Peter by God the Father. If you follow with me there in verse 17. 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's not by human flesh or human blood. That is to say, it's not by human agency or will or intellect or works that Peter arrives at this conclusion. And it's not by human agency or will or works or intellect that you arrive at that conclusion. But rather, it's revealed to us from God as a gift. God in his grace opens our eyes. God in his grace unclogs our ears. God in his grace opens our hearts to believe. And something miraculous has happened here in Matthew 16 as Peter makes this confession. And something miraculous happens here at Christ's church when our children or when adults or when anyone comes to make this confession that this has been revealed to us by God the Father in heaven. But the second thing about this confession we find is in verse 18. And Jesus explains there that this confession is the foundation on which the church will be built. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here Jesus uses a very interesting play on words that's difficult for us to approximate in English. But the play on words involves Peter's name and then the concept of bedrock. And what Jesus is saying is that this confession of faith that Peter has made, this confession is the bedrock on which the church will be built. That this is the very basis of what it means to become a member of the church. And this is what is critical for us to recognize today, that our membership, our belonging to this community, it rises and falls around one thing, and one thing alone. It is around this confession of faith in Jesus, that our membership in this community is not about our social class, that our membership in this community is only about our creed. Our membership in this community is not about achievements. It's not about accolades. It's not about anything that we can accomplish for God, but rather our membership in this community is solely built on Jesus and his achievement on our behalf. That's the basis of our inclusion, is looking to him. You ask why? Jesus later in the passage refers to the dynamics that will unfold that he will go to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and then on the third day be raised. He refers to these events cryptically, but they become the very foundation of why he is the one that we have to look to in faith because he is the one who stands in our place. Our sins are accounted to him. He receives the condemnation of those sins. But then because he is the righteous one, he's not held in the power of death, but rises from the dead. And when we look to Jesus in faith today, we are counted righteous in him. And friends, this is the only way for us to stand righteous and pure before God. Otherwise, our sins are counted against us. And so this confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God, this is looking to him to be the one who carries our sins and bears the sins of the world. But second, in verses 18 and 19, we also hear the promise of Jesus' triumph. 
As he speaks to Peter, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And in these verses, Jesus sets expectations for us. And he's setting the expectation that conflict is going to continue and it's going to endure for his disciples. Just as Jesus has met conflict with many different of the religious authorities and many different people that he's ministered to, that polarization around him will continue for us. He indicates that all the powers of the evil one will assault the church. This is what he means by the gates of hell. In the gospel, we've seen that the powers of the evil one are sometimes things like indifference and apathy. If you remember when Jesus heals the Gerasene demoniacs, the crowds see the great work that he has done. Despite having given them a benefit, they could now reclaim the road that the demoniacs had possessed. They ask him to leave. They didn't want him there. They were indifferent towards him. They were apathetic, and they asked him to get out of the way and return to his own home. This is sometimes what the powers of evil look like. We've also seen in Matthew 4 that the power of evil can look like a subtle temptation. That is, that Satan offered Jesus what he was going to gain anyway. He just offered it to him by a different route. It was subtle. And we've also seen that this power can clothe itself in even more benign forms. It sometimes comes in the form of religious authority, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who despite all their knowledge and learning, were a hindrance, a stumbling block to the kingdom. They were in the way. And it's in the face of all of this opposition it's in the face of all of these threats, in the face of all of this trouble, no matter how it masquerades itself. Jesus says that evil will not prevail against his church, that his church will prevail. And so, friends, in the midst of the disappointments, in the midst of the losses, in the midst of the setbacks, in the midst of all discouragements, in church life, and in the midst of even the horror of this week, of what unfolded with our church family in Nashville, Tennessee, this is the foundational promise. It's the one safe place in the midst of all of the chaos, in what can simply seem to be utterly meaningless, in what can seem to be capricious and violent, and from the heart and depth of evil. This is the promise that Jesus gives to the church. Even when we don't understand, the promise remains, and it stands firm that he will prevail. Several years ago, I picked up David Bacala's book, 1776. It's a historical work on the Revolutionary War, and I had read tons of history on the Revolutionary War, but it was a fun before-bed read. But as I read it, I found myself increasingly growing anxious. 
He does a wonderful job, especially in the early chapters, of bringing out the uncertainty of the whole enterprise. And you are thinking by the end of chapter three or four, how is this going to happen? There is no way this ragtag group is going to be successful. And then I had to remind myself, as I found myself not having an easy time going to sleep, they won. They actually were successful. I know the outcome of the history. I know what has happened. And friends, this is the same effect that Jesus promised is to have on us, that we know the outcome. We do not understand the path from here to there, and we don't know what the losses will be. We don't know what the setbacks will be. We don't know what the disappointments will be. We don't know what the sufferings will be. Jesus tells us we'll have opposition. But he says that that opposition will also not prevail. It doesn't win because the victory has ultimately been accomplished in him. And friends, this is the promise that the church holds fast to in the midst of all of its circumstances, in the midst of all of its grief, in the midst of all of its fears. Third, in verses 21 through 23, we also encounter the conflict that lives within us in the church. Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and there he is going to engage in a heated conflict with the religious authorities and that he's going to be put to death and that he is then going to be raised. Jesus has opposition with those who do not respond to him in faith. But then we see Peter's response to this message. And we see that the only opposition to Jesus in the world is not simply in those who don't entrust themselves to him. It's not just there, is it? No, we see that there is a misapprehension of Jesus that lives in Peter. Even though Peter has received revelation from God, even though Peter can rightly profess who Jesus is, he still does not accurately see everything. There is misapprehension. And there is a warning here for us that though Peter confesses rightly, he still does not see Jesus accurately. And we can suffer from that same weakness and disease. So what is exactly happening Peter corrects Jesus. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he says this to Jesus because he's most likely thinking, how can Jesus' church be triumphant if he goes down in defeat? The logic of it makes perfect sense. And Peter would have shared with many of his first century contemporaries the belief that the Messiah, the anointed one, was going to be a charismatic figure who came and led Israel in a new day, launching an abiding earthly kingdom that there would be glory once again returning to the people of Israel. And Jesus is telling Peter that he doesn't get it. That yes, he is blessed and he has seen rightly, but he does not yet see fully and he does not yet see truly. And friends, we can be guilty of the same dynamic today. We can bend Jesus to our own expectations. This is what Peter was doing. 
He had expectations for what the Messiah was to look like and what he was to be. Those weren't defined by Jesus. They just came preset in Peter. And we can lay our own expectations over Jesus, and we can let those expectations interpret him as to who we want him to be. Roger Nicole, one of my systematics professors, used to tell us, gentlemen, heresy is a truth in abstraction. He says this is where the church has always gone wrong. It wasn't that necessarily they started with something unbiblical, but they took one truth and abstracted it from everything else. And they prioritized it in such a way that the whole picture becomes distorted. This is what's happened with Peter, and this is what we tend to do with Jesus. We take one thing that is true of him, and then we prioritize it above everything else, and we end up, at the end of all of our logic, we end up with a distorted Jesus. It's always reductionistic. And so we have the social worker, Jesus, filled with compassion and justice. Or we have the therapeutic Jesus who dispenses comfort and hope. We have the ethical Jesus who teaches us to be good people, kind. We have the social conservative Jesus who teaches us to stand for children and the family. We have the revolutionary Jesus who fights against oppression and wrong. And we have the spiritual Jesus who teaches us about salvation but never meddles with the things of this world. All of these are reductions, and they're all freely available to you. But friends, what Jesus wants, against all those reductions, he tells Peter very clearly, get behind me. And this is what he says to us today. As we bring our reductions to him, as we make Jesus conform to our expectations of what he should be and what he should do, he tells us to get behind him. And many find those to be harsh words, but I'd like to give you another perspective on them. When Jesus tells Peter to get behind him, he is not dismissing Peter. Rather, he is telling Peter that he is out of line. He is inviting Peter to return to the place that he was summoned to take. In chapter 4, Peter is called to follow Jesus. And what Peter has now done is he has exalted himself and put himself in front of Jesus, and he's dictating to Jesus how he is to operate in his kingdom. And this is the tragic mistake that Peter makes. He was out of line. Several months ago, I was assisting Melissa in the preschool class upstairs during the first hour. And it was there that I witnessed one of the most heated conflicts and theological controversies that's ever taken place at Christ Church. There was a line being formed, and one of the children was in the middle of the line. He stepped out of line and said, I want to be the line leader. I was like, well, doesn't that sum it up? (laughs) About every one of us. We want to tell Jesus who he is to be. We want to lay our expectations on him. And rather, we are to be in line behind him, following him, submissive to him, listening to him as he reveals how his kingdom comes in the world. 
And what he's telling Peter is that my kingdom is going to come with a victory that you can never expect or understand. That it's going down into death to cancel the sin and the evil that characterizes not only you, Peter, but the entire world. And I will defeat it, and I will lead my church in triumph. I will win, despite the laughter of those who mock me, even as I go down into death. Friends, this is the conflict that still rages within us. And Jesus knows that in this church that he is establishing, that it still must be healed. And finally, verse 24, we also see the ethos of the community that Jesus is building. In verse 24, Jesus then welcomes all of the disciples and he commands them. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's three verbs in the sentence that are worth looking at for a moment. The first two, deny and take up, actually occur in the past tense. And then the third verb, follow me, occurs in the present tense. Beyond giving a grammatical lesson, there's something important for us to learn. And the importance for us here is that that denial of the self and that taking up of the cross that those are decisions made in time. Decisive moments, the decisive moment of conversion. But then once we have converted, we are on the continuous path, presently following after Jesus. This is his command to us. That yes, we must turn away from ourselves, but then we must continue to follow. That is to listen to him, to be supple, to allow God to reveal to us Jesus' way, to allow God to make known to us our own way and where it is wrong and where we need correction. That yes, the journey begins, and this is salvation, and then we are welcomed into the life of following Jesus down into death. We are to turn away from ourselves and our own resources, and we're to follow Jesus, and he welcomes us back into line. Brothers and sisters, this is the church that Jesus comes to build. He builds it in the face of incredible opposition. He acknowledges and teaches us the way of membership, that it's in him and it's in him alone. He teaches us that his promise is certain and is true, that he will build his church. Nothing will defeat him. He challenges the conflict within us, and he calls us to step away from our preset notions of him, where we want to co-opt him and use him for our own purposes. He wants us to learn from him what it means to be Messiah and what it means to be Lord. And friends, then he sets the ethos of this community. He says this community is to be one that follows him, that submits to him, that lives in reverence for him, that listens to him, that forsakes our own resources, our own will, our own achievements, and looks to him and to him alone. This is the church that Jesus comes to build. And he does all of it, though, in an interesting context. This moment with Peter had to be fairly awkward. Get behind me, Satan. 
inviting him back in line. But we see the gracious way of our master. Because if you follow down into chapter 17, Jesus then takes three disciples with him for a unique event in which he gives them a preview of coming attractions, where he's transfigured in front of them, glorified, something that was going to happen after the resurrection. And who's there? Peter. In all of his stumbling, in all of his error, in all of his mistakes, in all of his demand to be the line leader. Here he is. And this is the way of the grace of God with you. It's the way of the grace of God with me. And so allow him to call you back into line and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is you who has revealed these mysteries to us. You have granted us faith in your son to confess that he is truly the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God who bears our sins and makes us right with you. And you have granted us that great promise that he will triumph, that he will build his church. We ask that you gently correct us, bring us into line, and grant us to walk in that ethos of following him. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.